This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Dr. Matthew Thompson, your host today of the Australian and New Zealand Studies channel on the New Books Network. I will be talking with Mark Mordew, author of the biography Boy on Fire, The Young Nick Cave. Mark has been a freelance writer and editor on and off for the last 40 years, something he mixes up with uh, teaching writing most recently at the University of New South Wales in Sydney and also at the University of Technology, Sydney. Mark began his career as a student editor at the University of Newcastle's magazine Opus before becoming a national rock journalist at the start of the 1980s. His interests have diversified from music into film, books, arts, travel and social justice winning a Human Rights Media Award in 1992, in 2010 becoming Australian Critic of the Year with the Pascal Prize. Uh, And his work has consistently appeared through mainstream, alternative, and literary publications. He's edited three national magazines, Stiletto in the 1980s, Australian Style in the 1990s, and Neighbourhood Paper in the late 2010s. He also published the book Dastgar, Diary of a Head Trip in 2001, and has recently been developing a reputation as a poet with his first collection called Darlinghurst Funeral Rites. I should say that uh, I've known Mark for many years. He's been my editor, originally at Australian Style when I wrote for that magazine and then at Neighbourhood, and I do consider him to be uh, perhaps the the finest editor that I've worked for, uh, someone who encourages new ones, who seeks to explore the edges of things rather than smooth them off. Um, anyway, he's turned his last decade of attention to, to Nick Cave in an intense way, building up to what is now out on the shelves, Boy on Fire, the young Nick Cave, which is out in the US with Atlantic Books, in the UK also with Atlantic Books and in Australia with HarperCollins. So, let's bring on Mark. Well, 
thanks, Mark, for joining us here on the New Books Network. Um, when when we have people on, we usually start by asking how you came to write the book. So you know how you came to write Boy on Fire. But before we get to the kind of you know the publishing side or how you set out to do it as a book project, having you know read and and sort of absorbed myself in the world of your book, I thought I'd ask you to to capture that in its kind of genesis in a way by seeing if you could take us back to what 1982 at a at a live music venue in Sydney when you saw Nick Cave with the birthday party and also with hunters and collectors so uh, what was the what did that mean to you? what was the night like what was your first experience of Nick Cave on stage in front of you like and what was the kind of what did all this mean for you that night? Oh, wow. Well, uh, my, my actual first experience was a, a year or two before in Newcastle, my hometown, and the, the the birthday party had really only just changed their name from the boys next door and the, the, they were kind of in transition between the kind of teenage, kind of virtually a pop band almost that they were and this ferocious rock and roll band that they became and, and that's what, the, the name change signified really when they sort of transported themselves into being the birthday party. But basically the first time I saw Nick Cave and, and the birthday party, I didn't think much of, at all of them in, in Newcastle. In fact, I hated them. I thought they were pretentious. I thought they were like a, a horribly arrogant uh, band and that they weren't as good as I cracked up to be. But fast forward a, a year or two later and uh at the Sam McGuellian in Sydney, and I'm a kind of budding kind of rock journalist, uh, still pretty young, just out of uni, and they were terrifying. They, were, <laughs> they are still probably, on the basis of that night, the most frightening uh, band I've ever seen and one of the most powerful, without a doubt. Uh, the atmosphere in the room was incredibly intense. Uh, you dreaded sort of catching anyone's eyes. Uh, Hunters and Collectors were first band on. Uh, they'd already built a pretty big uh, reputation as a formidable unit and were very influenced by German bands like Can and had gas cylinder percussions and had. A, a, I think they were playing in a stripped-back format that night, but it was a big, powerful sound. And on the basis of how I'd seen the birthday party before, despite their reputation, I just thought, wow, there's, there's no way they can match what Hunters and Collectors have have, have done it was like being punched out by a, by a heavyweight anyway the birthday party came on uh and the atmosphere in the room was still you know full of this sort of anticipation and intensity and, and the whole room just exploded and in a way it was interesting because once they were on the the energy that was totally dark kind of eased and became something kind of more sort of joyous or released so there was a kind of outlet that the band provided in terms of energy and there was lots of slamming and just generally wild behavior especially at the front and um, Nick just put on a sort of huge uh, performance and I've seen this actually happen to a lot of Australian bands over the years since there's this thing that occurs whether it's a, a group like Boys Next Door Stroke Birthday Party or, or later bands like you know the Triffords or, or even you know, someone like In Excess for that matter, it, it, something happens when Australian bands go overseas where they, they magnify themselves and they're kind of 
they're kind of released from the constraining elements of the, the local environment and released from fear of pretensions and they really become something much, much bigger and kind of find a freedom in, in, in being unknown in another space and being able to kind of turn themselves into something larger than life. Right, and yeah, thanks for correcting me on the Newcastle one. I've, I forgot. That's right. You describe how when you first saw Nick mm-hmm. Cave play in the in the band, it was um between like they're still working out where they're at and what they're about, and hadn't quite the engines weren't really firing. Yeah, they're they're a like, funny hodgepodge like of, of of old influences and new. So you saw flashes of. Well, there was a lot of sort of good stuff from the early stages as well. You know, songs like Shivers and. After a fashion, uh, which were actually Roland S. Howard songs, as a matter of fact, and uh, and the hair shirt, which is a Nick song, early Nick, very early Nick Cave song, uh, that was great too. And I, I think they were beginning to, they were basically beginning to mutate I- into the material that they would lay down for for prayers on fire. Well, why? I mean, what did it um, strike you as at this time? So you you know you, you're growing up in in you know small town australia then moved to sydney and then you're talking about how these artists go away get some confidence to break through the fear of pretension barrier that uh, we can talk about with australia and then explode on stage and stuff i mean what kind of sort of uh voltage or impression or or you know change to kind of jar into you or, or put through you uh well I mean, I guess Australia, it's, it's maybe a little bit difficult for uh, American or, or English audiences to fully understand, but there's always this, but, but then again, if you're if from the suburbs and you're dreaming of the city, you know, the same kind of energy, you're always dreaming that this other place is going to be the place that makes you and any news you can get from that other place, whether it's an album or a magazine or something you hear on the radio, you're hungry for it and you devour it and you study it. And, and I, I guess you're kind of dreaming of escape and you're kind of dreaming of conquering the world too and, and being bigger yourself. So I, don't know, I think in Australia that's a really powerful guiding force, but it, it can knock you back too if you don't succeed. You can kind of sort of fall back into the hole and, and, and kind of give up. Um, so, you know, because the, the, the cultural environment in Australia can be kind of brutal in its, its indifference uh, and in its conservatism. Uh, so, yeah, you're just looking for opportunities, I guess. And for me, it was the same kind of thing, you know. Like, I actually just watched that movie, Almost Famous, the other night, and it reminded me a lot of, of, of the very early days with me just being kind of young and naive and pretty uncool and and just sort of trying to find a way into who I was as a writer and a and a, a young man and and uh, and just do what I felt like you know I mean that's always the great thing about rock journalism as a beginning place certainly in those days there was a kind of freedom to it and you could kind of make things up as you went along and your writing could be pretty loose and maybe pretty bad but it could also get very experimental and exciting as well so there was always room in, in rock journalism for styles of writing that just you just would not see anywhere else. That's why, you know, if you go back into history, you get a Hunter S. Thompson at Rolling Stone or or a, or a, or a Paul Morley or, or a, at the NME or whoever it might be, that there's a, there's a, a willingness to, to allow chances to happen 
And that was what I was interested in, in the music and the culture and just in what I wanted to do. It makes me think of uh, sports writing too. So, I mean, uh, for example, when I was working in a newspaper in the sports department, the editor was saying sports are repetitive, cliche-ridden things. And so they, the editors really value writers who, who can let rip in, a, in new ways to make these ball games and things yeah. like interesting. And there was a, an ex-English teacher on the staff who did this fantastic article about the Newcastle Knights from your hometown of Newcastle with one particular guy in charge, uh, with Joey John, saying it was like as if Andy Warhol was at the helm of IBM. <laughs> and that was a sort of intro of the That's story. Great. But it's like, yeah, these, these areas of writing that are um, – yeah, there's less rigid control of them, you know, and more of interest in bringing it to life. So what, but what was the path then to, to write a, a book about um, Nick Cave as opposed to any other, you know, musician in Australia? Oh, wow. Well, the path is kind of a bit of a, a, a twisted one. It's, it's funny to hear that question. You might be able to hear in the background now. It's just started to rain here and it's just pelting down and it made me think about the way it kind of rained down on... On me, uh, I mean, initially, uh, I, I was always a, a fan of, uh, of uh, the birthday party because they just got better and better. Um, and uh, and of Nick Cave as a solo artist, and I'd seen practically every tour that he, he gave from the very beginning as a solo artist right through into the, uh, the, the 2000s. It was actually Jack Marks who suggested the idea to me. He's another really great Australian writer, uh, and I dismissed it at first because I thought I, I didn't want to get kind of sucked into the slipstream of someone else's life. But when I thought about it, I'd been writing about rock and roll and art and books and um, film and all kinds of things for 30, 40 years, and I, I realised I not only knew Nick, but I'd interviewed his collaborator Mick Harvey, I'd seen Roland S. Howard perform, I'd interviewed Vin Benders, the filmmaker, I'd interviewed all these other uh, musicians and figures and I thought, oh my God, I actually, I actually know everybody and I'm almost the same age as these guys and I've grown up in many similar ways and with many similar influences, which is why I was interested in the first place. Um, and we're part of the same culture, so it would be crazy not to do it. So I came up with the idea and I was originally going to do a, a, a more uh, conventional, if ambitious, sort of A to Z life uh, full life biography, and it just got too much, um, and the whole thing kind of spun out of control. Um, and I was just struggling financially, struggling with a re collapsing relationship, just struggling to sort of figure out how to get on top of the material and, and live. And um, I mean, that's the irony of biographies that that your own life gets in the way of the life you're writing about. And it all kind of came unstuck. Uh, so there's a kind of a few lost years there that were more to do with me getting my own act together. And then just uh, literally uh, a year and a half ago, I was able to regenerate interest in the project and do what I wanted to do, which was a, a, a portrait of the artist as a young man. That had been my sort of, because I'd already done it, just a ton of work in that area. And I, I'd realised that you could kind of see the seed of everything to come, uh, if I can use that word, to 
in the young man, and it's a bit like that sort of Jesuit saying, you know, give me the young man, the child till seven and I'll give you the man. It's, it's so true. And, and we know it ourselves as we get older. We, we reflect back on our, our boyhood or, or our girlhood and, and our, our teenage years to, to figure out what we are. And, and to figure out why we act certain ways that trouble us and, and also to find new energy. We go back to our youth and our childhood to kind of regenerate ourselves, I think. So it's, I realised there was a lot of important stuff there and, and a lot of great social and cultural material about about Australia and, and just the global culture at the time and, and, and how, it, how it worked and, and why these kind of encampments that became sort of punk rock and post-punk grew up in these obscure places like like Melbourne, not obscure in the sense of cities, but obscure in the sense of clubs, like Melbourne's Crystal Ballroom or CBGB's in New York or, you know, what was happening with the punk scene in London, the, the, literally just camps that, that, that had a larger kind of impact and, and grew. So it was, a, it, was, it was long and it was messy, you know, and... Um, uh, and I, I think now, uh, in retrospect, it, it's it's all the better for it. But I, I don't know if I'd want to go on that kind of journey again. No, I was going to ask you about if you know Nietzsche's eternal recurrence thing. Like, would you say yes to li- living this exactly the same way again to get this book done, uh, or is it yeah, too brutal? And- well, you know, I I, I probably wouldn't change anything you know I, I worry about the the impact that it, it, it had on you know my family my kids um, uh, but you know like you can't kind of go back over that territory you can only go forward so I mean I want to do a volume two because I, I did so much work I've got enough material to do uh, the birthday party in London and, and Nick Cave in Berlin and that's a kind of confined and measurable period. Uh, and uh, I, I'd kind of like to honour, too, all the people who gave me their time and energy as well. Um, so we'll see about that. I don't know. It's weird. It's weird biographies, how much your own life gets entwined with it uh, and how much in writing about someone else you, you're also puzzling out who you are as well along the path. Um, I think any. Yeah. Well, you're you're inter- oh, Sorry, Mark. Yep. I, I just think any biographer that doesn't sort of recognise that they're writing about themselves in some ways is is either lying to themselves or, but you don't want too much of the biographer on, on top of the the subject. Uh, you know, because I think that's a bit too narcissistic. You just need to be aware of the the sense of uh, how writing about anyone is is a type of projection and, and, and a sort of chemical interaction and what the, the sort of politics and psychologies of that are and, and in order to be able to sort of kind of become a, a bit more objective again but I think writing as a process usually you're looking at the page and with a bit of time to cool off which a book certainly allows for you can kind of see what you're doing and what you're saying and some of the, the, the values in it that reveal as much about you as the subject. Well, you know, when you're talking about that, I'm thinking of um, parts of the book where you are, you know, riding in cars with Nick Cave or at his house or, you know, in his presence and there's, or with his children in the park and so on. Yeah. And it makes me think of the, you know, the Frank Sinatra has a cold 
story goes to Lisa's one. Even though Frank Sinatra didn't speak to him, it's a much more telling piece than if it had been a sit-down interview with PR agents around and things. Oh, yeah. And, um, yeah. I mean, the, the actual uh, parts with you there with Nick are, are very revealing of Nick, I think, and partly I know that the kind of against the image unnecessary decency that kind of I guess you describe he's it's one of his last projects I guess to kind of become a half <laughs> decent person yeah. um, <laughs> and, and it wouldn't come out like so much without without you being there yeah. I, um, don't, I don't know how 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 flattered he'd be by that but I, I think it's true and uh, and I think he was working on it when I first met him and and the tragedy of losing his son Arthur has uh, accelerated that that need. I mean, it's just a need in all of us, you know. As we get older, we, we want to try and be better people because, you know, especially if you've got kids. But you know, getting older, you're coming face to face with your mortality. You want to kind of rise up rather than than sink down. And and uh, but it's a process. Uh, and and I also think, you know, there's still plenty of dark energy in in, in Nick. Even even though you know, like he, he's got the red hand files and he's been through this tragedy, and there's a tendency to to sanctify him. You know, there's still a lot of uh, human edges there present. You know, so I'm aware of that side to him as well, very much. But still, well, for, know, I mean, uh, yeah. well, I'm just just thinking about what you said and this whole kind of thing. I mean, you know, if you look at Boy on Fire, I mean, basically the, the, a very simple version of the journey is you just see this kind of, you know, brilliant, uh, beautiful young country boy who's a, a handful of trouble because he's wild but basically a very sort of sweet kid and then he gets to Melbourne and and, and, and school and there's the pro, you know, boarding school there and the, 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 the bullying and, and so all boys and just the... And, it, and, it get, and the contest and the friction with his father, who's a kind of inspirational but looming dark figure in, in the vein of Red Right Hand, the song, and you, you just sort of see it all get darker and darker and drugs come into it. And really by the end of the book, he's this kind of sort of this graduate heading into the demonic uh, uh, to wreak havoc on the world with what will be the, the birthday party. But I guess what I hoped when you look at the framing of the book and there, there's that, all that personal stuff about how I got involved and me and Nick together because there are these, these sort of prologue and epilogues that sort of give that wider context. You sort of see it in the larger story that, that Nick's kind of come back to that. We're trying to get back to that, that boy and that youth and to... To, to not lose that soul, basically, which is really what it's about. Well, there's fascinating lines from you through it um, where you're talking about, like, the country town in Victoria, in Australia, that, that uh, Nick Cave grew up in, Wangaratta, or Wang, as they call it in there, and, and how there's this, um, like you said, he's a country boy, and there's the walking around barefoot, jumping into rivers off bridges and shooting, you know, diseased rabbits at point blank range and all the country boy stuff. Someone's dad giving underage kids a six pack of beer and a gun, you know, this kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. 
all that stuff. But you talk about how you know, Wangaratta is also where the rats of Tobruk, the the, the Australian Army unit that, that stopped um, Rommel and the Africa Corps in its tracks for the first mm-hmm. time, were stationed with lots of Wangaratta guys in it. And, and you know, there's a, there's a like, um, mongrel element that you talk about too, where it's like you, you take the, the kind of intrepid um, boys of the country thing with all their toughness and don't give us toughness and things. But when you throw in um, boredom, I think you mentioned how it can turn like thuggish and, you know, and malicious in a way at yeah. times. And, and, um, and Nick Cave is, is just does, doesn't look like one of the country boys with his black suits and white shirts and, um, you know, gaunt kind of like uh, William Burroughs with long hair act on stage or whatever. But, but yeah, there, there is that right, that mongrel in him, that 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 that, that like shithead country boy on the rampage quality. Yeah, for sure. Um, he's a, he's, uh, and Nick's a much physically uh, powerful guy than you might think. I mean, some people probably do perceive that, but I remember being backstage with him one time and looking at his hands, and and I like. His, his fists were like clubs. I was just so big and I, I, I just registered pretty naturally as another male, well, I would hate to get into a fight with you. Like They, they were like mallets, you know. So he's, 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 he's deceptively uh, powerful physically. And, you know, you only have to look at, like, even in a way, just those early photos of, of, of Nick Cave and Roland S. Howard together when they're kicking off uh, 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 as a creative partnership and... Roland S. Howard looks like this strange little bird and Nick Cave looks like this sort of kind of evil monkey, you know, and you just think, well, if you give heroin to these two individuals for the next 20 years, who will survive? And you'll, you would pick Nick Cave because he clearly looks the, the more physically able of the two. And, and when sometimes I look at that, that bigger history which goes on outside the book but starts in the book with drugs and and a can't, more an intellectual violence than an actual violence, but there is actual violence there as well. Uh, and just risk-taking, you know, just lots of young men risk-taking going on, riding on the roofs of cars and and the use of drugs themselves and just pushing the envelope in all kinds of ways. Um, you just you just see that Nick has the DNA as well as the luck to survive that, that maybe some others don't. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And what um, what does he see as his Australianness? Like just before talking to you, I went back and I watched his acceptance speech at the Australian Music Industry Awards. Mm-hmm. That's his induction into the Hall of Fame, the ARIA Awards and that. And he's, you know, he's kind of um, slamming the organizers for not having his whole band up because he's saying that 
they said part of the bad seeds were those bands of foreigner or the bad seeds of foreigners and things. And uh, but he said we're an Australian band out in the world, uh, you know, writing, delivering Australian music to the world. Um, what does what is Australian to Nick Cave? Well, that's a really interesting question because I mean, so often this comes up for so many Australian artists, not just Nick Cave. And I mean, we're this weird sort of compendium, you know, if you're just looking at rock and roll of, of English and American influences. And I guess the, the, the sort of the, the nature of distance itself in terms of how we translate that and then the, the, the warp of the, the landscape and the, the local environment, which kind of brings in its own uh, rhythms, if you like, if you, you, you were willing to believe that. Uh, I mean, particularly, yeah, I think Nick has a feeling for it because he is a country boy. I suspect people coming from the cities uh, are more confused as to, to how to, to answer that question because so much of the answer does come back to to feeling and, and intuition and, and spirit uh, because you're, you're entering into a kind of global aesthetic currency in terms of rock and roll or art or whatever it might be. And yet you've got this sort of identity that's been forged in the in the in the physical world of Australia, one way or another. I mean, you know, when, in the past when he used to talk about Wangaratta, which was where he grew up, he 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 would often be really pretty disparaging. But there's a, a real affection for that place as well, and and it's kind of I think it exists as much, uh, which he himself says it exists as much inside him as as a memory. So it's a it's a dreaming place. So I, I think Australia for, for Nick provides a kind of uh, place in his imagination to to dream and and recreate. And it, it's it's a, he's I mean he hasn't lived here for what 30, 40 years, forty years. Um, so you know, it, but he comes he, he he did come back every year to to visit his mother and he would always time his tours. Fortunately, it was in, at the height of summer, but he, he would always time those tours, not just for Christmas, but also because his father uh, was killed in a car crash in very early January. So Nick would always be home uh, on the anniversary of the death of his father for his mother, uh, which tells you something about Nick's real um, sense of himself and his, his the value he places in family and his feelings for his mum and those sort of sensitivities. Um, so it's, it's, it's a kind of, I just think Australia's a really important dreaming place for him and and humour comes into it too, you know. Like one of the things I, I was really pleased about with Boy on Fire is that sort of between the lines and in, in the comments of Nick Cave but, but also other people in the book like Roland S. Howard and Mick Harvey, they, it's a, this is just this really dry funny way of speaking I, I can see why journalists in the UK got confused by them because they'll say something that to me I think is really hilarious but it would be treated as a, a dead straight comment uh, and I think maybe only another Australian or a person who's been in Australia for a while can understand that, that black humour which is, is pretty black sometimes uh, and very very dry. Or possibly Lou Reed who just comes out with like deadpan zingers that are <laughs> yeah. People would jump on take seriously. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, there's a, there's a line you have from Nick that he, I guess he said to you in there in one of your times with him, which, which, or I don't know if it's to you or not, but he says how, 
I'm an Australian. I, I mean, we don't even half time. We don't know whether we're joking or not. Like, yeah, it's a he said that to great me. line about. Yeah, it's a terrific line, you know. Like, um, and and it it led me to think about Kurt Vonnegut and Mother Night and this thing of like, be careful what you pretend to be because you can become it, you know. And and the the sort of vitriol that there is for Nick Cave out there, or whether it's people who feel they've been betrayed by him, hurt by him, that he's a, a creep and a misogynist and and everything that maybe he is those things in various ways and stuff, but, but like there's a strange um, ambiguity of, of where performance is and where life is or anything. And Well, um, you know, when you perform, I mean, any performer, it's, it's an enlightened, and I, I, you can count uh, novelists in this too, you know, it's not just stage performance and, and people do it on Facebook for that matter. You know, it, it, I think artists are a little bit more aware of the the process and the transformation. You're you're, you're enlarging yourself. You're 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 you're, in, you're using a part of yourself and and a whole imaginary area to create this kind of hyper being or meta representation of you. Uh, but it isn't really you in total. I mean, it's like that cliche of of you know you you meet a. A, a, a comedian and all they want to talk about is philosophy and you meet a philosopher of depression and, and they're hilarious people, you know, like like what we are in our work isn't the total of, of how we are day to day. And I also think in work there's a, there's a sort of mixed um, contrarian thing of on the one hand representing, you know, if you're any good with what you do, the, the, the very worst of yourself and using it as an energy and also trying to use your work sometimes to sort of dream yourself out of trouble so your work is maybe a wish of who you would like to be, which, again, can kind of cause a sense of hypocrisy from some people if you're writing very beautiful things but acting in very ugly ways, you know. So, But perhaps your work is an attempt to sort of heal yourself. Maybe that's being a bit generous. But I can see all that in, in, in Nick's work, the, the sort of the extreme good and bad of it as sort of manifestations of, of uh, aspects in him. And I can see why people have mixed relations with him that go right back. And again, in Boy on Fire, you, you're seeing the, the formative nature of how Nick treats people and how people feel about him from the very beginning. And actually, one of the things I'm most proud of about the book is being able to include all these sort of microbiographies of people around him and not just his collaborators, but, but the kids he grew up with and and how their dreams have got mixed up with, with, with Nick's own life and, and how they measure themselves against him and how for some that's that's crushing or depressing or or, or, or angering and how how for, how for others it's a source of, of, of pride and 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 warmth and, and and just the whole sense of of what growing up itself means. I think that's a really important thing to the book. Well, you know, like the one of his neighbours uh, talking about Nick as a – what did he say? He, was, he told you that Nick was like a branch of his dad's anger, oh, yeah. which I thought was a fascinating line. And and also the town Wangaratta, it's like the – whether it's that neighbour or another one of Nick's friends saying – that uh, when Nick went on to be a you know rising musician and 
notorious for his antics and and things. It was like Wangaratta thought he was a bit of a dickhead. <laughs> like, but but when he becomes successful, they start to like him. You know, it's yeah. like it's like a, if if you take one guy from a country town who's just a drunken jerk or something, uh, that's that. But then if they can also become a test cricketer or whatever, it's like oh we, we they're they're great. You know, it's yeah. like. Uh, and then, and then Nick, what Nick wants to have a statue. He's like giving interviews, saying there should be a like a metal st- statue of himself on horseback. And yeah, which I, I mean, think he does want. It's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's wild, isn't it? Like the ego is just well, that's it. Complex and big. Yeah. Well, I mean, in the in Wangaratta, yeah, he's. I mean, this relates heavily to the stuff in the book. His father, Colin Cave, um, was a, a total dynamo and uh, a really major figure. And if, if Nick hadn't have got so famous, he'd be known as Colin Cave's son. Uh, Colin Cave kind of revolutionised adult education in the state. He was lobbying to get, uh, I think, a university set up a, a, around Wangaratta. Uh, he was um, uh, heavily involved in local theatre, both in Wangaratta and at the Malvern Theatre in Melbourne and I think a lot of Nick's sense of drama and, and acting derives from the influence of his father uh, and, and really importantly his dad ran this big symposium on, on the Australian outlaw Ned Kelly who's I guess a bit like a sort of like combination of Robin Hood and Jesse James um, for reference over in America and um, and the weekend symposium uh, Colin Cave wrote a, a really good and entertaining uh, paper about the outlaw and and uh, how he was you know, shot down at Glen Rowan and the armor that he wore, uh, and it's almost like it's it's this mythical tale really. But what's interesting about that symposium is that that then had a big influence on uh, I think I always forget the, the the main kind of biography about Ned Kelly's life. And that biography and symposium also influenced Peter Carey's book, The True History of the, the Kelly Gang. And and Nick was raised through his father in all this history stroke mythology uh, and I think always kind of loved all that storytelling associated with it and sort of came to understand history and mythology as very interrelated and, and that that's always been on his mind from when he was a kid just from watching his father's obsession uh, with this outlaw and and the nature of a, a story as, as larger than life and and where history and myth blur together and I think he's been cultivating it from the get-go. And uh, Ned Kelly of course being the the guy Eventually gunned down and captured, and then hanged after his um, his last stand, wearing armor like a what beaten out of plows, and mm. uh, you know, and and coming back to the siege and the standoff when he could have got away and all yeah, this to uh, try and find his brother. But you know, I mean, it, it, yeah. the story of Ned Kelly and. The siege at Glen Rowan, and uh, I, I mean, they rained thousands of bullets down upon them. The outlaws had melted ploughshares down into kind of these, this sort of this tin arm, thick tin, thick iron rather armor. I mean, it's 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 it, it, 
if if it wasn't true, you'd just think this is just ridiculous. It's it's surreal, uh, and it's and it was it, it was the, the the outlaws were burnt out. So two of the bodies were burnt almost beyond recognition. One was strung up that was more recognisable against a, a wall, and it's the first major Australian press photograph ever. That I think, um, which again tells you something about Australia, you know, uh, and yeah. uh, and and that's a, an image that Nick uses near the start of the film, the proposition, and it's a, an image that Nick references in songs like "Sunny's Burning." Um, so he was really uh, affected by it, and I don't think he was traumatized by it. He was thrilled by it, you know, and and also spooked by it too, because there's a sense of these romantic but violent ghosts kind of traversing a kind of a sort of hot, strange, sort of almost mystical landscape. And I think that affects the vibe of a lot of Nick's songs. Yeah, and, and, and amongst this, um, I, I remember having uh, had to speak to a few like uh, historians of the Kelly story, because uh, like I was editing a book someone had written on Ned Kelly once and, and some of it just didn't quite add up. So I pressed them on why what happened at the siege happened and things. And they eventually just came out with like, well, we're, they're all completely wasted. Like <laughs> they were trashed. I mean, you, know, like some, you can't understand the decision-making mm-hmm. without understanding like profound, prolonged intoxication yeah. either, you know. It's, and yeah. I can believe that totally the, because it's it's like – a, a madness is set in, so it defies logic. Yeah. And, and yet, on the other hand, it's quite brilliant. Like the and and uh, you know, I mean, it's like the ending of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. If you chuck in medieval armor as well, <laughs> homemade. Mm. It's just like whoa. All right. Yeah, and then there's the what earlier. There's um, did Nick uh, ever talk about the Gerildery letter? So the the letter by Ned Kelly that he dictated. Because he was illiterate, that is kind of reads it in parts like a Nick Cave song. Oh, yeah. You know, I am an orphan son, and, oh, yeah. and you know, I'm going to. There's going to be blood and all this, and oh, know, yeah. hear me now. The end is coming, kind of oh, stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to remember, like the because I mean, we definitely talked about all that stuff. I um, but I definitely hear I hear Nick's father's voice. And I hear Nick's voice in Ned Kelly's The Drillery Letter most definitely, uh, particularly uh, Nick's early sort of uh, early voice, you know, that, that was there in the birthday party and, and, and the, the sort of Berlin era bad seeds, you know. And, and that probably again yep. relates to your earlier question, yeah, Nick's sense of Australianness and, and that there's, because in the Gerildery letter, it's really funny. It's very disrespectful to authority, but it's also very threatening too. Um, you know, it's, and it, and it's very and it's also kind of uh, not not exactly woe is me, but you know, I'm, I'm I'm being beset unfairly by by these people, by the authorities, and you know, wrongly accused, and uh, and I'm going to rain hell upon you all uh, justly uh, and in the meantime delivering all manner of insults to sort of flat-footed policemen and whatever it says I forget now but it's pretty hilarious to read it's just 
a fourteen, an hilarious fourteen-page insult with 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 some malice and menace chucked in. Yeah, and and semi-biblical in tone. At yeah, times. quite poetic, really. Like uh, it's when you realise, wow, okay, so so Ned Kelly was a, actually, yeah, uh, particularly when you think of his background, this you know, remarkably uh, intelligent. Uh, uh, and humorous individual, and, and in that respect, I can see that Nick might have felt some sympathy as well. That he, he was a bit of a, a kind of unruly country boy like him. Well, the, you know the um, anti-authoritarian quality, I guess, is um, perhaps one of the Australian attributes. I mean, Australia's got a weird mix, I find, of um, of like just going along with anything authority says, you know, with the police and justifying everything. And, um, you know, you have strip searches at, at downtown Sydney main train stations at lunchtime in case someone's carrying drugs or something. And, and there's no protests about this really of any, I mean, you know, it's just in some ways it's like, it's like murmur, mumble, complain about the police, but do whatever they say. But on the other hand, there's none of the kind of American um, sucking up to, power figures with the yes sir stuff and all that kind of thing for everybody and Mr. President and whatever. Mm. Um, but that kind of mongrel anti-authoritarian thing um, reminds me in some ways of like the quality of Bon Scott and, and Nick, I mean, Nick's in there talking about how the, um, you know, he's got this thing for ACDC and, and then when you, when you read Boy on Fire and you see what, um, this era that Nick's really coming to life in, which is the late 60s and then through the 70s. And then, you know, your book prompted me to go back and watch um, live footage of Bon Scott in ACDC in the 70s. And there's like this, just like this nasty, brutal, searing, sweaty, gleeful performance of like dog eat dog when they were in Glasgow in 1978. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's not pretty. It's not, um, it, it you know it, it's not anything but, but just this sort of uh, soaring testosterone um, like country boy shirt stripped off sweaty riding the moment to its maximum thing and it's it's like uh, you can I can see what what he you know what, or I, I can see what I imagine he he like digs in that kind of thing it, it it's like so uninhibited and and, and just so in your face. Yeah. And, and 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 just doesn't give a stuff, you know. Well, I mean, I should say I, I'm not sure potent. How, how huge a fan of ACDC Nick really is. Like there was Mick Harvey, Nick too. They're into sensational Alex Harvey band who had a kind of similar energy, or maybe a bit more kind of cabaretish, but that that funny mix of entertaining yet yet threatening that Alex Harvey. Oh had. yeah, I don't mean the the. Music itself, because yeah. I mean, yeah, it's more the performance, so much in there exactly. It. You know, like yeah, a, the attitude, completely. Yeah. You know, the and and yeah. and the, the the complete sense of fuck you, uh, aggression and humor, and and just, I mean, it, it's it feels corny saying, it, but just that rebellious, take no shit thing that 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 definitely early ACDC had with Bon Scott. And the, the way they took on the world and 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 basically took the world by the throat, really, just by being such a tough, great rock and roll band uh, without any apologies. I think that was definitely inspirational. 
And and there's this weird thing about sensational Alex Harvey band just a few years before that were obviously Alex Harvey is an inspiration to Bon Scott. He was an inspiration to Nick Cave. And just that thing of combining theatricality and entertainment with something that's that's really kind of like a bit of a street hoodlum kind of energy and that's a bit bit scary, you know. I, th- I think that there's, yeah. a, there's, there's a buzz that, that came off that for a lot of Australian performers that came through Alex Harvey and Charge Bon Scott, Nick Cave, you know, Jimmy Barnes with early cold chisel, like even, you know, Skyhook's a little bit, not quite the same thing, but, you know, that there's this, this, this combination of, of performing, uh, entertaining and being willing to threaten, which may relate to, to just how tough the, the pub and entertainment environment was around Australia. Like it's not exactly the, the warmest place to perform if you can't kind of kick out in the jams and, and give people an energy buzz like you soon know about it, particularly back in the 70s and 80s. Well, I, I, there's a quote that he's said, you know, about how they made the mistake, he puts it ironically, whatever, of, of playing to the thinkers, not the drinkers. Um, and it, it just makes me think of this with the Bon Scott thing versus the um, the intellectual appearance of Nick Cave and, you know, his persona and stuff. But uh, in both kind of scenes when I've been in, into the that sort of post-punk thing in the 80s in Australia and into the kind of hard rock slash, you know, more into the metal end at the same time, um, both scenes uh, had interchangeable, anarchic, you know, violent overload to them. Um, and both were about, you know, catharsis and a kind of shamanism and things as well. But the crowds would have absolutely nothing to do with each other. So, like, I went to ACDC in the 80s once, and there must have been 40 people thrown out before ACDC even came on for, for <laughs> brawls and vomiting, collapsing and, and brawls that were so big, you know, people had to like flee the area. Well, like it was like a cartoon, yeah. with just these rolling tumbleweeds of fists everywhere, you know. And 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 then on the other hand, you know, the kind of um, well, not lubricated goat end so much, but but um, heavy slamming at, at, at thrash bands and punk bands and things in the eighties in, in in Australia. And each one would understand the the emotional experience of the other, but they wouldn't mix with the crowds. So, so one is all people bust in from the Western suburbs or something. The other one's all inner city and some suburban elements, but the, this mongrel energy is, is like very potent in, at both ends. Well, I mean, what you're talking about, I reckon you can see as a more direct influence, like coming through bands like Radio Birdman and the Saints, you know, like Saints especially, like they were absolutely inspirational energies for the boys next door and and Nick Cave, uh, and they definitely kind of kind of galvanised them to intensify uh, and to kind of know where they were going and what they wanted to be. And you know, I mean, you know, which I say in the book, like the the boys next door. I mean, they're really like we look back at at, at everything now through the prism of Nick Cave because he uh, is such an incredible success story but when the boys next door were formed as a group and 
they were very much a group. And, you know, you had a, a, a world-class guitarist like Roland S. Howard. You had a world-class music arranger in, in Mick Harvey, who has not only worked with Nick Cave, but also, you know, PJ Harvey on what I think are her best albums and bands, totally agree bands, there, yeah. bands here like The Cruel Sea. I mean, Mick Harvey is one of those collaborators who seems to sort of work alchemically with people and bring out the best of them wherever he goes. Then you had Tracy Pugh, who was perhaps the most genuinely thug-like character in The Boys Next Door and whose bass sound really was the, the sort of you know, scary heart and throb of, of the birthday party. But he was also this sort of you know amazing intellectual guy who excelled them all at school and sat around reading Plato and and then getting into fights with the audience later on. So he's he's full of contradictions. And then you've got a drummer like Phil Calvert who's really affected by jazz and you know practicing to James Brown and who who brings this incredible spring to what could be this more kind of you know rigid and and, and less attractive band in many ways. So he brings a kind of rhythmic intelligence and invention to the party. So there's this, so, and so they're all, they're all stars and they all, their influence individually uh, continued uh, long after uh, the birthday party uh, disintegrated. And uh, I think we need to be mindful of just how, how much of a unit they were at the time. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, Again, watching them before we spoke, some of the concerts from like 1983 or whatever, just that 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 potent mood that gets established through the through the guitar and things. Just mm-hmm. this sort of jarring, gradual rhythms that build up, you know. And Nick Cave works with it and stuff, but it would not be the same without the that thrumming kind of menacing sound that that, that builds up. Yeah, I think that you know, I mean the. the, the it's it's detailed in Boy on Fire, but you see, you know, they basically they were a school band. You know, they started playing together in second year at high school. I think Nick joined in actually joined in third year. You know, they were just doing, um, you know, covers by you know, Alice Cooper, The Stooges, um, you know, uh, all acts like that. And they were, then they started to develop a few originals from pretty early on um and i think mick harvey in particular was pushing them in that direction and nick had had lyrics he was kind of playing with uh and then roland s howard came into the picture and i mean he really was the one that that transformed them onto another level because he'd already written um the song shivers you know while he was still at school uh which is kind of remarkable uh both melodically and lyrically uh, and uh, you know, so that they, they just they really just all the right people came together at the right time, and you know, by the time they were leaving Australia, they they'd been playing you know, since they were sort of well, round is how it came a little later, but they'd basically been playing from when they were you know fourteen years old together. So they were a hardened season unit that had practiced and practiced and practiced and had played a, a, just an absolute load of live shows, you know, more than most people might play across their, their, their entire 20s in, in some places. Well, with them the, you know, going to school together and stuff, I, you know, I come across some you know, critiques of 
cave that he's just a private schoolboy prat and things. And and then I, I was looking at um, what's his essay, The Monarch of Middlebrow. You know that one? Was it Anwen Crawford yep. about um, how cave is just a, a middlebrow misogynist whose <laughs> stuff is an equivalent of of like um, sexist gangster rap, no more sophisticated or evolved than it. Um, but it appeals to people who want to think that they're smart and so on. And he pe- it, he feeds into the cultural cringe in Australia. People here or in Australia think he's smart because he's popular in Europe and admire him because he's so confident, which is so different to what Anwen Crawford calls the ritual self-deprecation that marks Australian artists and things. You know, I mean, how many people want to propose having a, you know, a massive bronze statue of himself on horseback in their hometown mm-hmm. and things, you know? And um, what did you make of all that? Like that, that his, that, that, that portrait of him? Uh, well, I don't know. For me, I guess it's a bit simplistic. Uh, and, um, and for me too, it's, it's a, a type of criticism where you kind of, you know, plant a sword in someone's body and stand on top and say, look at me. Um, so I, I was, you know, but I, th- I think there's lots of truth to it um, as well, though, that, but that those elements, but those, those are not the only elements. So if I wanted to just worship Nick Cave, then I would only talk about his love songs and you know, and the artistic side to him, and I would leave out all the stuff that Anwen Crawford talks about in the same way that I think in that essay she leaves out all the stuff that doesn't fit uh, for the sake of what is convenient to a sort of agitprop kind of attack. Um, so, you know, uh, as a, a kind of a political sort of essay assault on his aesthetic, I think it's really good, but I, I, I can't really um, take it uh, 100%. Uh, seriously, because there's so much else that doesn't fit into that pattern. Um, one thing that is true, though, that I think is interesting is this whole thing of uh, ego and when a, a, a performer goes big. And there's a lot of um, paranoia in Australia about being pretentious and being poetic and, and these kind of things, and, and it inhibits a lot of people and restricts them uh, and, you know, when you look at really big Australian performers like a Bon Scott or a Michael Hutchins or a Nick Cave, they, they, it, you know, like they, they have sort of had to sort of bust through in some way or another and, and magnify themselves and all, that's what all performers do. They, they make themselves bigger than the cultural environment that they're in and they become these kind of... They become their own invention. Uh, I guess the danger is at some point, you know, the mask you invent for yourself sort of gets stuck on your face and you can't take it off and you can't be whoever you might have once been for real in your private life. And that's what happens to someone like Michael Jackson or even Prince for that matter, you know. Um, yeah. So it's a, it's, a, it's a complex thing. But, you know, I don't know if I'm answering your question properly, but I, I, I had... I, I just had really kind of mixed feelings about about a lot of people love that essay by Anwen Crawford, 
but I feel like it, it, it plays to a certain set of perceptions that are even more um, popular now in, in some ways in the, the current sort of identity politics climate where we have an idea of people uh, that we prefer a kind of a sort of anthemic version of them as good or totally bad and we can't kind of accept a picture uh, that I hope is already evident in Boy on Fire where a person is beautiful and horrible, is good and bad, uh, is dark and light, does really lovely things and then turns around and behaves like an asshole. Uh, is horrible to women and then very sensitive to women and caring and de- de- defending women in certain situations in a way that no other male at the time is doing. So there is a whole mixture of things that is basically what most of us know ourselves to be and that's a kind of complicated, inconsistent human being. Yeah, and um, I also, on the pretentious side, like uh, apart from the the mix of, you know, good, bad, ugly, and everything in between. I, I, I also remember like an interview from years and years ago, the 80s in Spin Magazine with Perry Farrell of Jane's Addiction when they were, I guess, I don't know, a bit like the birthday party in some ways to me. Like I remember seeing them back then before they self-destructed and and there was that similar energy of, of violence um, in the air, and, and Perry Farrell try, was hell bent. It seemed to me on turning the the audience against themselves and and provoking kind of self loathing in the audience. Um, and if there was a song people wanted to hear, then mutilating it and and making it into something else that was ragged and brutal when people wanted something else and and highly in, like in, in, intelligent but contrarian. Um, self-destructive, brutal edge of things, and and and. But the thing that got me was it's like it was so emotionally powerful, like it it worked as as theater and everything. And um, so, like I um, one thing that these essays that trash people put aside or whatever is is just that the audience, the listener, is is having parts of them um lit up inside in a, in a you know a pure and powerful artistic experience that mm-hmm. that perhaps a an essay about how you shouldn't feel that for this reason and that reason is far less important than you know well um, it's, it's it's a complicated area isn't it you know um do i go to um i'm just trying to think i'm having a mental block uh bacon the english painter I don't go to an exhibition by him and come out the other end and want to engage in, in gay, sadomasochistic sex, you know? Like, yeah. uh, I don't listen to Nick Cave songs about misogyny and murder and want to go out and, and rape and kill a woman, you know, I, any more than I do when I hear old blues songs. I don't, you know, listen to or read a, a William Faulkner story like Barn Burning and, want to terrorise my children and set fire to the village, you know. Um, but I am aware of the theatre of it and I am aware that there is a genuine, there is something real in it. There is a real darkness in it and there is a real report from the front lines of a, a, of a very sort of um, 
disturbing energy. Uh, and yeah. so the, the, the violence in it is artistic. The violence in it is theatrical. And the violence provides a kind of journey um, to make you look at your own energies. And, and I don't think women any more than men are, are, are above a, a sort of, uh, you know, the, the fantasy of homicidal rage, for instance, uh, and, and the process of how one exorcises it often does come through music or theatre or just understand it better in ourselves. Why are we, why am I acting, what, why do I feel, where does rage and anger and hurt uh, and injury sit in my life? I mean, art provides a kind of window into looking at that in, in oneself. Um, so it's got an important role to play. And again, I think in the present time, there's this desire through everything from trigger warnings and safe spaces to whatever to sort of negate the necessary voyage in, into the dark side of who we are. And, you know, uh, not all of Dick's work is about that, but I think the best of his work certainly ventures into those areas. Uh, and I think any artist who does that is an important artist and I, I, don't, I don't need them to be perfect human beings to justify the, the value of that art in my life and that art does not make me then behave, you know, in an A equals B kind of way. Um, yeah, we're not all Caravaggio because we look at Caravaggio. Well, that's right, yeah, exactly. I'm not off, I don't, don't look at some Caravaggio and go, <laughs> go off down the road to have a sort of like it's, it's, it's too simple. Of course, what we do have, undoubtedly, uh, I think that rock and roll, because of its its sonic power live and cinema, because of its technological and visual power, that there are so there are there is an undeniable uh, additional uh, drive that paintings and books, for instance, I think are, are much less likely to to uh, to do to you. So you get a, a sort of an adrenalised hit. Um, I mean, that, that is, is true. And that means that, of course, you can kind of generate violent behaviour at a rock concert. You can create a film that, that does sort of inspire pretty kind of aberrant behaviour. Um, so there's something in the nature of the mediums and the moments that uh, is an additional kind of red zone to be aware of. Um, but, you know, I, I think... Yeah, I, I mean, this is really ultimately if we kind of to bring it back to to Nick uh, uh, in some sort of rooted way. That's why the the one of the reasons why the birthday party was disbanded because they were attracting more and more violent audiences, and they had seen themselves as an artistically violent group in the sense of explore, exploring violence, darkness, and aggression through the artistry of their songs, but they were getting people coming along who just simply wanted to engage in sort of aggression and violence. And to counter that, they began to play slower and slower, which only made them more powerful and frightening. Uh, and the audience reaction, particularly in Europe, was just getting out of control and they just got sick of... And in that, you began to see Nick's contempt for his audience growing because he's seeing all these people who are sort of coming purely for the aggressive side of things and he holds them in complete sort of dis distaste 
and in some ways is provoking greater aggression and eventually the whole sort of loop just sort of closes down and they just go, you know, we just don't want this anymore. We don't want these kind of people and he didn't want to make that kind of music anymore, not in that way anyway. That's interesting. And on the um, artistic provocation side, I saw he he, uh, admires or appreciates Jermaine Greer without agreeing with everything she says but but with the idea of, you know, speaking your mind, provoking ideas, provoking debate, mm. um, you know, putting some, throwing some uh, curly ones out there for people yeah. to get them out, off their balance and out of their, you know, routine thought. Um, but again, she's, she, you know, she hasn't lived in Australia forever. And uh, this just, again, made me go back to um, – you and your process of getting this book done and, and the kind of middle period, your lost years or whatever of, of this long and, and difficult project, but in Thirul, because um, Thirul being where D.H. Lawrence um, stayed for five weeks, I believe in like 1920 or, or maybe less than that, in 1922, and uh, stayed in a house there, uh, had very little to do apparently with um with uh you know society and he was out and about a bit and he he read a lot but but like camped in thrill cocooned in thrill he then writes what kangaroo which i feel has some of the most um succinct and 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 beautifully precise and suggestive takes on the australian landscape on mateship on um the anti-intellectualism of Australia, all this, but he, he, you know, from, from sitting in a holiday house kind of thing in Thoreau and, you know, he, then in Kangaroo, he's talking about um, how each individual in Australia feels himself pledged to put himself aside, keep himself half out of count um, to not stand out, to, to, to not think too much, to not say too much, to be in a kind of like unspoken communion with your mates Um and and during this to go blank inside in your withheld self, and then he talks about the how this ties into the landscape, um, the indifference, the what does he call it, the fern dark indifference of remote golden Australia, not to care, uh, just to keep enough grip on the machine to run the machinery of the day, to not think or strain or make any effort to consciousness and all this kind of thing, and it's um, it, yeah, it's just propulsive factor where where people kind of at times thinkers artists whatever basically i know australia's not the only one does this but flee australia and then and then you know get kind of attached to it at a great distance um but the rule though like did you did you feel anything there because also you know nick cave is um you know was uh influenced in in one way or another by by Brett Whiteley, and there's mm. some interesting parallels there. But as you write in the book, Brett, Brett Whiteley flames out on heroin. Nick Cave survives heroin. But but uh, correct me if I'm wrong here. But didn't Brett Whiteley die in Thrall from yeah, heroin? He did. That's and, and so did you? Did you feel much in? Th- oh, yeah, sure. I felt a lot in things in Thrall. Yeah, I mean that was where, in a way, that's the sort of hidden heart of the book because that's where I kind of recovered and came back to it and came back to myself. I, I was actually living in a, a shack 
at the back of this surface friend's house that was ne- literally next door to where D.H. Lawrence had lived. Um, so we were like kind of neighbours in parallel worlds. Um, that description kind of rings a lot of bells for me about myself as well as um, I think any Australian would sort of recognise themselves in it. Uh, and I think Kangaroo has sort of improved as a book because some of the the themes of the rise of a kind of proto-fascist group that was part of the narrative drive of Kangaroo were kind of mocked at the time, but I don't think it seems so funny now. And, um, uh, you know, but that, that's Lawrence's sort of feel for the landscape and for the, the, the culture and and that sort of kind of, keeping yourself sort of hidden or silent or erased within it is, is, is just incredibly um, perceptive. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I can, listening to you kind of give that summary made me think about the book and that sort of refusal to sort of accept that uh, that uh, came not just from Nick but from a lot of the people around him one way or another uh, not all of whom exceeded. So there is that sort of feeling in the book of, you know, Nick and, and the band succeed, but a whole lot of others sort of fall back into the the vortex of, of what Australia can be. And and so there's that sort of um, sense of, of dreaming and suffering kind of going on in a, in a collective and, and social way uh, that, that has a lot to do with the formation of Nick as a, an artist uh, and the, the process of sort of getting out of, um, you know, how kind of, you know, blank and cruel and controlling Australia can be. Because I think earlier we talked about this sort of anti-authoritarian thing, which is indeed very powerful in Australia, but there is also a very kind of controlling uh, social sphere uh, where you shouldn't get too big for your boots, to, to use a phrase, and where... Um, there's a there's a, a, a terrific sort of inhibiting uh, pressure, and it, it does actually require almost a degree of psychic violence to 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 break out of it. Um, and uh, maybe that's true of any artist anywhere that they have to reject the norms uh, and the, the the peer pressures of, of things around them uh, to, um, to to just get free and do the work that they have to do. And maybe there's also a compulsion in it too that it's not just a reaction, that there's just something in their chemical makeup that they they do it and they can't help it. And perhaps that's why some artists you know, die trying to, to do what they do, whether it's it's Van Gogh or Brett Whiteley and while others are able to kind of smash the chains all together and, and advance. Yeah, I mean, like one of the... Um... You know, having moved out of Australia recent times, uh, various Australian phrases in my mind that kind of just pop out of nowhere as I live somewhere without hearing those all the time. And one of them is the insult, you think he thinks he's good <laughs> or, you know, she thinks she's good or something. And that's like, <laughs> it's like a yeah. worst thing you could do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you, you think you're so hot, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, d- um, do drugs mean anything to Nick Cave? You know, and I ask this in terms of, um, you know, the move or, or a body of kind of 
belief or justification or explanation with drugs that it's like a addiction is a disease and um and it, do, it doesn't necessarily mean anything versus you know those who would interpret addiction in various ways but but other but other people say no well six percent of the population are prone to um you know like losing it with a substance of whatever kind and so on but does to, to nick anyway does does heroin um, and whatever else he's, he's relied on at the times he's tried not to use heroin, does it have any meaning to him? Uh, I think that, well, I mean, that's that's sort of part of the story. I mean, obviously in Boy on Fire you're seeing the beginnings of, of, of Nick uh, and Roland S. Howard in particular uh, taking uh, heroin. Yep. I mean, they were really all taking every drug under the sun except for Mick Harvey, who, who, who at the time didn't even drink. Uh, which is remarkable given the nature of people around him. Um, but thank God for that because he was the one who sort of kept the whole machine organised and running along with, with Phil Calvert while the others just went right off the beam. Um, and I think you can certainly hear the way, uh, uh, I mean, it's not in the, the book, but you, you're seeing the beginnings of how heroin feeds into all these other artistic and creative influences and, creates a kind of chemical culture for the crystal ballroom uh, scene in St Kilda that, that Nick and the boys next door were a part of and and for really what became uh, the birthday party as well and, and their music. So it's undoubtedly an influence. I think it does influences things like the lyrics, the kind of you know, unexpected and, and aggressive um connections you know the the weird sort of dark dreaminess and it was definitely affected their image as well you, you can't say that, that their image wasn't sort of part of, of of their mystique and how they presented themselves as kind of you know junky kind of you know show down at the okay corral outlaws on stage that was that was all kind of a feature of the what became the birthday party but I, I think too, you know, that eventually um, the appeal of the drugs as having some kind of ability to open other worlds, um, you know, fell away. Uh, and by the time you're looking at, you know, a record in Nick Cave's career like The Boatman's Call, which is a great album, but it's also as much about uh, exhaustion with drugs, I think, as much as it's about, you know, his sort of failed relationships with Vivian Carnero and PJ Harvey and, and you know, he's just running out of steam. Like, and, you know, again, as you get older, you don't recover so well and all of a sudden you're finding that, you know, drugs and alcohol instead of being something that you can kind of um, explode through and, and find sort of reckless spirit in, Suddenly you're on a three-day recovery pattern and you're depressed and it's not helping you or your work anymore. You just don't have the, the youthful zest and energy. And, um, you know, and along the way too, but to, you know, unlike I'm talking more about drinking when I use that, those descriptions, but when you've, um, you know, you're seeing friends die from overdoses and you're only surviving yourself through, through luck, it just starts to all get boring, really boring. 
and and uh, and this the, anything that the drug might have sort of given you as a a young person has has long ago exhausted itself, and it's actually you're just dragging a, a ball and chain around by the ankles, really, and, and kidding yourself. So, of course, by then the problem is that addiction is is well and truly set in, and no matter how strong or talented or egotistical you might be, you're really a servant to the drug, and it's and not a lot of people don't can't get out of that. And I see a lot of artists around now who uh, they've totally lost their mojo because they haven't been able to to grow um, and change, and they can't grow or change because they're still within the drug sensibility of something that that they've been within for twenty years. They're stuck. Their consciousness is is held inside the the sort of heavy honey of the of uh, the drug of heroin or, or, or of alcoholism or, or whatever it might be. They're in aspic or something, you know. They're, they're just stuck. So, you know, the only way then out is to get over your addiction, and that's not easy. I just – I saw that like, – so that fellow, that very prominent psychoanalyst and, and psychiatrist, I believe, Dorian Leder is mm. has been or is Nick Cave's therapist, mm. and – um, Darian Leader, I mean, is a kind of interesting, unusual thinker, but I mean, he's he's seems to me quite strongly in the psychoanalytical, you know, post Freudian kind of tradition or Freudian rather than um, uh, the group of psychologists and psychiatrists who've, or you know, the main body now that have rejected all that. But that, I mean, that kind of suggests to me there that. Nick Cave would be looking at his yearning for or need and craving and and uh, the role of drugs in his life in terms other than oh well I have you know a uh, disorganized attachment uh, psychological relationship with my deceased father and I have this other disorder or that uh, post traumatic stress situation and things hence I'm more inclined to, or you know have proclivity for this in combination with my genetics or whatever and more likely to be looking at himself as a kind of um, semi-mythological being in some ways, like a, a soul that, that, that has um, holes and, and, and unformed areas and pains and, you know, the unconscious is powerful and all this. So, do you get any sense from him if, how he looks at himself in the um, – or if there ever is a cold light of day with him in terms of uh, – does he see himself as someone who'd have a bunch of psychological diagnoses that would lend themselves to drug addiction and things, or does he look himself as a life that's experienced extremes and um, and and uh, you know exiles of kinds, whether it's been sent to boarding school in Melbourne and the, and then the death of his father and all this stuff, and he's just a raw soul experiencing what the world has. Um, as opposed to you know opening the DSM manual and saying oh yes well you have this psychological disorder and that one and so on. Well, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, 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 I'm not an expert on Darian Leader, but my impression is that he, he too is it doesn't sort of simply reduce people to a, a set of disorders. I, th- I think Nick certainly views himself through mythological and spiritual readings. Um, and looks to both mystic teachings 
and and mythical stories for some sort of uh, uh, logic to to all these things. Obviously, he's aware of sort of sort of psychological damage and difficulties in his life from you know, uh, the the trauma of his father's uh, death at eight when. Nick was 21 and, and Nick's kind of complicated connections to that, uh, to, to the, 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 the truly traumatic death of his son Arthur uh, from a cliff fall um, and, and just the whole trajectory of, of Nick's life and the people that have sort of passed away along the way and, you know, I, I think he finds... I don't know whether consolation is the right word, but some meaning in those mythical stories and, and consolation more in the you know, mystic teachings, whether it's his interest in the, the, the book of Mark in the Bible and the teachings of Jesus or earlier on the, the ferocity and rage of the Old Testament as a kind of vehicle to sort of exercise his own you know, anger. Uh, and, and more recently this sort of weird sense of, of sort of mystical dreaming world that he's 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 moved into that where the violence where there's both violence and and beauty and where memory and the present are all sort of mingling in some strange ways really in a in a new space over the last three four albums it'll be interesting to see where he he goes with that you know um so I don't know whether I'm answering your question very well or not. I'm just thinking about it as I speak. Uh, but he, uh, I, I don't think he views the the things that have happened to him as as problems to be solved. You know, uh, yep. you know, in the kind of conventional psychological sense. I mean, they obviously sort of empower his songwriting, and his songwriting. You know, uh, for for ill and for better, um, is probably the the, the the healthiest thing in him, you know, like it is for any artist, you know. So, you know, he kind of explores consciously and unconsciously a whole lot of stuff and has all his life that that a lot of people, you know, don't even reflect on for more than a minute. Um, so, you know, uh, I think... I think he's only got to maybe the better place he's at now uh, because he's been to all those other sort of dark places in his his songs in the past. And, you know, I don't know, again, you know, what what has sort of messed us up and the mistakes we've made is also what kind of hopefully we, we learn from and makes us better in the the long run, and, and this again makes me think about the, the current vibe for identity politics and this sort of simplified view of human nature and of safe space and and alike. You know, like is that that really going to make us better human beings in the long run? I, I think a lot of it is just double talk and hiding, uh, and we still need art that, that kind of takes risks and, and people that admit their fallibilities and and their worst and and as well as sort of seek out their best in their work to to get a real sense of who we all are as, as human beings and to get anything decent in the way of art and music, you know. Like I, I, I don't go to to art for a sort of PR exercise, like to, to get some affirmation in some sort of simplified sense. It's like, uh, you know, 
I mean, yeah, sure, I mean, I might love a pop song that makes me feel good. Sure, you know, it, you know, like, uh, but but I, I don't go to that. That's not like a policy that I'm seeking in, in, as a guarantee in everything I hear, see, and listen to. That would just be a woeful way to be. In. I mean, it would actually be a kind of totalitarian state, really. Yeah, and I, I, in, I was looking here a line from that you wrote in there about. Nick Cave um, having insomnia, uh, thinking about his dad and who his dad was and all this and so on. And um, then you got this line, it may be that certain questions about those we love are never answered. Yeah. And, yeah, it's like not, I guess, there's no formula, there's no answer. There's yeah. Yeah, well, I mean. Mystery to be lived. Yeah, I mean, in, in the book, like Nick's father, Colin Cave is uh, a huge influence on Nick uh, through the interest in music, through interest in theatre, through particularly through interests in literature, uh, through the Ned Kelly mythology that Nick's father was obsessed with, just in all kinds of ways. He was he was a larger than life figure, uh, and Nick butted heads with him, and their relationship sort of got more and more difficult. And then, boom, all of a sudden, Nick's father is killed in a car crash. Uh, Nick is causing both his father and his mother a lot of grief at the time and is in trouble with the cops. So his father dies right when Nick is creating the most difficulties for, for, for his father and his mother. Uh, and so there's this sort of sense of the the father's death being caught up with a whole bunch of unresolved issues, if you want to kind of use that psychological phrase. So there's the anger that was never resolved. There's the, the, the guilt about what he was up to when his father died. There's the, you know, how much he kind of had made things hard for his mother too at the time. And so it's a whole bunch. And, and yet, of course, there is genuine grief and, and love. And, you know, and so it's all, all these con- complicated and contrary feelings all mixed up in this one incident and you know i mean i I mentioned before the influence of heroin on the birthday party but of course probably the big influence on the birthday party was the death of nick case father in a in an accident and how that kind of trauma propelled nick uh, out into the world and sort of changed his whole sort of attitude to songwriting and to you know, writing about kind of sort of death and to, to, to utilising his anger in his music, all these kind of things that really kind of galvanised him. Um, so, I mean, once again, we're kind of talking about stuff where there's no kind of simple plus or minus to it. It's just a whole bunch of things in this big sort of dark, difficult mess and then trying to kind of explore it and sort of figure it out and exercise it and... And, and, and make use of it and, and, and get beyond it or, or give it a place that's meaningful. But it, it, it certainly, um, I mean, your book is like heavily reported. Like, I mean, you've, it's just beautifully sound with its research and reporting. Mm-hmm. But it, it, this, the story itself, even with that grounding in reporting, lends itself to, to mythology. It's like, because doesn't Colin Cave, Nick's father, die this you know death on the on on this road 
by himself and things just days after Nick is arrested for what could be seen as stealing a throne. Like he yeah. just takes this throne-like seat, mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm. ro- you know, steals a throne, and then his father is like within days is is struck dead. You know, yeah. like car goes off the road for maybe because he swerved for a branch or something. But yeah. like it's um, yeah, in the midst of all this tension and competition between them, and Nick trying to as you've written there, um, show him his, his creations and what he's doing and the father dismissing them and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then the next uh-huh. thing, Nick steals a throne, his father's struck dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know. There's a lot of stuff like that in Nick's life where it's just like, uh, you know, like it's, it's again, if, you know, it's, it's that, that's the beauty of nonfiction. You know, if you, if it wasn't uh, true, you'd just go, well, no, that's, that's too corny. You know, we can't, you know, can't, that's just all too neat. I mean, again, though, Nick's been writing about this stuff in song a lot too, so he's sort of woven mythology back across all that material, but the the the, the autobiographical material has all been there and the, the weird coincidences of just what you were describing then about the throne and the, the stealing of the throne and the, the death of his father. There's, there's, there's so many things like that uh, in the story that, that, that web together um, very easily to, to make the story both a, a biography and yet a larger-than-life uh, tale. Uh, and, yeah, it's almost Shakespearean uh, in, it, in its nature. Um, uh, so, yeah, you know, I've been kind of lucky in that regard, but it, it's complex. Well, I mean, I don't want to lead you into the years afterwards too much and, you know, right through to the death of his son, or because if that's some, um, I guess possibly material for uh, the next books you write, whether it's the the ferocious years through the eighties and things, and into the nineties, or or on to the death of his son and stuff. But um, hell of a story in in each phase. And um, I wanted to ask though to to kind of wrap things up. Like, a, do you? Are you working on anything now, like writing, whether, you know, Nick Cave related or completely otherwise, what, putting pen to paper, proverbially, yeah. on anything at the moment? Yeah, it's funny because I've, I've been feeling a real restlessness in me. Uh, the book came out uh, about six months ago now almost, I think, here in Australia and then in the UK. It's just about to be released in the USA through Atlantic Books um, there. And... Um, so I've been doing a lot of sort of publicity and promotion stuff around it. I'm, I'm gearing up for doing a volume two that will at this stage basically be about uh, birthday party era in London and and uh, uh, Nick Cave's sort of solo sort of formation in Berlin with the, the bad seeds across the 80s. So that's kind of arguably his, his darkest sort of face and, and, um, uh, and some sort of still see it as his greatest face um i've also got a a novel that i've had on the back burner that my publishers are keen to to see sort of develop some kind of fixing out the manuscript for that uh i did it for my ma in writing at uts here in sydney and um and I, i i feel pretty good about that too and i'm glad my publishers are keen to see me develop that aspect to 
to things. You know, I'm always writing poetry all the time, but, but you know, I'm not expecting anybody to, uh, you know, rush out and sort of mob me to, to publish that. But, uh, but I just like doing it. And it, in a way, the writing of the poetry gave me a kind of energy line to be able to write the biography on Nick. And it's interesting to see how much poetry has been an incredibly powerful influence on his work in the last decade, both lyrically and melodically, I believe. Uh, in terms of how they've had to shape the music around the way Nick's lyrics have shifted into almost a pure kind of poetic expression. Um, and, yeah, you know, I'd, I'd, like to do, I'd like to do another non-fiction work that's l- less um, endless uh, than the stuff with Nick, like something that's focused around an event uh, of some kind that I could complete quickly across possibly a six-month period um, in, a, in a shorter book kind of project that was journalism-driven but, again, where the narrative is kind of inherent in the incident. Um, I mean, you know, In Cold Bloods, I guess, the archetypal legendary work of, of that nature, but, of course, that took Truman Capote six years and nearly destroyed him and I've been there on that kind of trip, so I'd rather do something that's a bit more user-friendly for my own sake. Um, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, lots of stuff, but I, I feel restless because I've, I've kind of been a little bit caught inside the, the, the loop of the, the book finally coming out and the, the publicity around it, and, and, and I, I'm, I'm kind of feeling edgy now to, to move on. And you're not tempted to just take up heroin now? No, yeah. To get rid of the edginess. No, I mean, I mean, there's, this is kind of the same thing. Like reading this next book, writing the biography about Nick, and obviously I'm moving into sort of phase two. But I mean, it actually just makes me want to be as clear-headed as I can be, um, and to to be kind of healthier. And you know, I mean, the funny thing is that Boy on Fire has actually been selling to a lot of young people from what I can glean that's just anecdotally but there's been bookshops and record stores have been telling me they've been getting a lot of young people buying the book and by young I mean people in I mean really young like late teens you know very early 20s if uh and that was that's just entirely uh accidental I'd, I'd had never thought especially that the book would appeal to an audience of readers that young and I kind of imagined it would be something that kind of older Nick and middle-aged Nick K fans would connect to. But, of course, a book called Boy on Fire, the young Nick K, that's a portrait of the artist as a young man, naturally it's going to appeal to, you know, kids that are in their teens and very early 20s who are forming themselves as as, as young creative beings. Um, they're going to be curious to see... Uh, how that happened for Nick and for all the people are, are around him. And um, so I'm, I'm, I'm really glad about that, but I, 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 I don't think the book is a recommendation to, to go down the same roads. It's kind of, I hope, both inspirational and sort of cautionary at the same time. Because, you know, in, in Nick's larger life story, which was we mentioned before, really he's, he's spent his whole life getting back to, certain things that were sort of lost or that got kind of buried along the path, you know, and, and I think that's that goes to the glow of Wangaratta as a sort of kind of sacred sort of memory within him. Yeah, it's uh, 
it's a complicated life, like um, just logistically, emotionally, and yeah. you know, what he had two kids born in two different places to two different women, ten days apart, at the same time, yeah, also. ten days apart. Yeah. So that's a good way to end one then, relationship, at least. Um, the uh, but yeah, we all have complicated lives. This is the thing, you know. By the time you're hitting sixty, yeah, you know, yeah, getting a bit older. You know, you've, you've lived more than one life usually. It's like kind of you've, if cats have nine lives, how many lives have you lived by then? Four, five, six, you know. You've had a few relationships. Maybe you've had kids. You've had some ups and downs, you know. You've done some great things. You've done some not-so-great things. You know, I, I think, um, you know, that's the, the grand thing about it. But it, it's, it's, it can be bruising it's, and it can be hard and, you know, like you've got to, Kind of, kind of. There's just that cycle of having to rise up again out of the what would seem to sort of almost crush you. And I, I hope that's a kind of theme of Boy on Fire and of the project more largely. That you know, that to, to sort of keep coming back out of the, you know, punching your way back out of the the sort of darkness that that you kind of fall into or invite yourself into. Yeah. yeah, it's fascinating. Like one of his friend, childhood friends has just got that animal strength. Yeah. Um, just don't give up. Just keep going. Yeah. I mean, mind you, there's so many scenes where it could have all just ended. There'd be no more Nick Cave, no Nick Cave. Like where he and his friend's bandmates steal a car and then think it'd be fun to drive it into a power pole. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Like, it's like, you could have just ended there. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. But thank you very much, uh, Mark, for no joining worries. us on the New Books Network, talking about boy on fire um we'll have the full details in the on the show notes here so it's out in australia about to be out in the uk and then uh, also about to come out in the us oh, it's, is that right? it's um the book is um has came out in australia through harper collins in november uh it came out in the uk uh through uh atlantic books and alan and unwin uh earlier this year and it's just about to come out in the USA through Atlantic Books uh, on June the 4th. Excellent. Mm. Okay. Well, congratulations and uh, talk to you in uh, 10 years' time (laughs) about part two. Hopefully sooner than that, but you never know your luck. (laughs) (laughs) You never know. Okay. No worries. Thanks, Mark.